The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hello, my friends. Welcome to episode 140 of the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Hey, this week's guest is a very special one for me in Katie R. Dale. And I say special for a few reasons, one of which is because I know her as a member of the local Writers of Warrensburg group uh, for the past few years. So that's been special. I got to watch her grow as a writer and then, you know, come out with her first book. And she's here today to discuss her debut book, But Deliver Me From Crazy, a memoir, which I find very timely given our current global situation. There's lots of fascinating things about this book. Uh, you know, it goes into mental illness, lots of things that I am certainly not qualified <laughs> to talk about. And uh, we we discuss we discuss the book, how it came to be, and uh, what went into it. And usually, I would describe some of that to you, but you know, I don't want to do it a disservice uh, because I'm I'm not somebody with a a grasp really on this. So I'm going to save that for the interview because I think it's a great interview and I think I think Katie does such an incredible job of really capturing everything that's going on. We also talk about other things like writing for the reader, um, you know, what went into this first book, and then she also has information for you about uh, how to find help. So that interview and reading is coming up here in just a couple of minutes, so stay tuned for that. Uh, but first, I'm also very excited today to announce that the show has now been picked up and is available on Amazon Music, uh, which, from what I understand, is also a part of their Audible uh, platform. So that's exciting to me because it's just one more way for people to consume the show, just like iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and you know every one of your podcast players. Uh, and, and I think that's awesome. I, I love it. I know we've already got several, a couple dozen downloads in there already. So check out the Amazon Music platform then uh, give it a try and let me know what you think you can also follow the show on social media we are on facebook and twitter as just the sample chapter podcast the show is now also on instagram which i am still learning <laughs> it's a growing service for us uh, something that uh, i'm getting used to if you'd like to reach out to the show uh, you can comment on Anything you've heard or give me a recommendation, then you can do so through email at samplechapterpodcast at gmail.com. You can contact me by phone, leave a voicemail at 660-851-1146. And uh, yeah, as always, if, if you leave me a message, then I will play that on the next episode. As always, I want to thank my writing, my favorite writing software, Scribner, for being a wonderful uh, sponsor of the show. I'm kind of kind of short on time today, so I'm not going to go into it too much. But you, if you're a follower of the show, then you know how much I love Scrivener, and uh, I invite you to check out this advertisement and make sure you're paying particular attention to the coupon code so that you can save twenty percent on the regular desktop version. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. 
Now I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener Writing Software, built by writers for writers. All right, I also want to thank the first of my podcast networks that we are a part of, which is Pop Goes the Culture Network, home to all of your pop culture, geek, and nerd news home to around 10 new shows. They're all great. They're wonderful shows to check out and uh, definitely worth your time. So click that link in the show notes for more about Pop Goes the Culture and uh, tune in on Thursday nights when they go to their, they go live on their cast channel to record their Pop Goes the Culture podcast show. So check that out. And lastly, I want to thank Project Entertainment Network, my second podcast network that we are a part of home to 35 or more than 35 now shows everything from horror to monsters to christian to writing uh, the list goes on and on and on tons of great shows on there just like this one you're about to hear an ad for every person's story has something to teach us how others view life how obstacles are overcome how joy is felt how fears are faced, how love is expressed. The Matters of Faith podcast explores individual stories of people's lives and how faith plays a part. It may not be your story, but it may help shape yours. The Matters of Faith podcast with Jay Wilburn is on Project Entertainment Network. All right. And yes, that was just another one of those amazing shows from the Project Entertainment Network. Everything you hear today has a link in the show notes, so let's get on over to our interview with Katie Ardale and her debut novel, But Deliver Me From Crazy. Hello, Sample Chapter listeners all over the world. Welcome back to another episode of the Sample Chapter Podcast. This week is a very special one for me. With me on the show is a friend from the from my local writing group, somebody I've I've had the privilege of watching grow and, and build her her writing. And uh, today I, I'm just so happy to have her here. Uh, Katie Ardale is my guest. Katie is a mental health advocate and writes for Fresh Hope for Mental Health. Uh, she's a currently a Missouri resident uh, with an active duty husband. Katie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's great to be here. I love having you here. I, I miss getting to see you and the whole gang with the uh, with the writing group. But, uh, you know, this is uh, I'll take this too. this is this is fun. Yeah, I'm glad you invited me. It's kind of good to reconnect again. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Well, so I now speaking for myself since uh, since COVID hit, I have not been able to tune into the group um, to check in with our writing group. I don't know if you have been mm-hmm. able to. Yeah, neither have I, especially, okay. yeah, especially this year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Going on. Oh my gosh, yeah. So how are you doing then? I'm doing good, yeah. Um, we're, we're, we're working through, um, I, I've been working full time at the Behavioral Health Outpatient Clinic um, since June. Um, 
and came back to that job after I was pregnant for last year and mm-hmm. um, had my baby boy in March. And then uh, after his eight days in the NICU, unfortunately, he passed. So we've been working through that grief process. Yeah. Um, but we're doing good, cons- all things considered, and especially in light of COVID, you know, nobody's immune to uh, COVID these days and what it's done on the, the world. So yeah. we're, yeah. you know, just taking it a day at a time and, and enjoying uh, the presence of my husband's family because they're in the area and we're staying with them now and uh, in the process of moving because uh, my husband's been assigned to a new duty station in Florida. So we'll be moving there in April um, after we were actually expecting our second child now. I don't know if you heard that. Oh my gosh. No, I haven't. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. So we're thrilled <laughs> about that. It's it's been uh quite a roller coaster, but I think, you know, we know we're in good hands and uh we'll be having the baby in like late February and then after a six month kind of leave for my husband, we'll or six weeks, excuse me, leave for him from work. We'll probably take off and move across the country. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. Wow. So. Yeah. It's, it's been quite the whirlwind year for you. And mm-hmm. I know, and then with the, with the move coming up and yeah. And let me just start also by saying thank you for, for your service um, as somebody who's been both the military member and the dependent. I know what kind of work that is and every, all the, sacrifices that you make as the as the dependent so thank you for everything mm-hmm. that, that you do as well uh and and to your husband mm-hmm. thanks all right so let's dive into this a little bit here your mm-hmm. your debut novel but deliver me from crazy a memoir uh mm-hmm. has been a, a, an amazing journey for you um give us a little bit of information like what where did this book come from I started writing it in 2010, I think. I joined a, uh, we were in Florida at the time. I joined a local Christian writers critique group there called Word Weavers. And uh, some of my friends invited me and I was like, okay, this sounds good. I've always wanted to write a book. Um, Since going through um, my first hospitalization in the psych unit uh, at 16 years old and having always been a creative person, you know, I, I knew I wanted to get that story out. So I started writing it in 2010 and then three years late, no, two years later, I actually ended up having part two unfold, um, which is actually the majority of the book. (laughs) I had written part one, you know, when I was like 21, 22 uh, in 2010. And then I started, um, you know, having things happen. (laughs) I needed to go back to the ward where I went off my medicine um thinking you know I would be done with the book but no so part two unfolded and then that was let's see all that happened within a few months and um took me a while to recover and start writing again maybe a year and then been writing a little bit at a time all through you know working full-time with different jobs and stuff through the years so it took me you know, I had the manuscripts and I had all the scenes written out because they were all memories and um, I had an idea of how it was going to flow, but, you know, I outlined it, but it was not until I got pregnant with our first child last year with Jackson that I was like, you know what, 
I better do this before I have a, a baby, my, you know, kids and, or else I'm not going to get it, get around to publishing it. Um, I better, you know, get, you know, settled in here. And, um, so I did, I got with an editor, started working on it and, um, seriously, instead of going to critique groups and like working on it through them. Well, in addition to, you know, I started working with an editor one-on-one mm-hmm. and, um, got an outline together for like the actual book. And then I did, went through a lot of, um, I think online courses on how to self-publish. Oh, I had a, I had an agent at one point last, what was it? 2017. Oh, I, pitched, okay. I pitched it to them because mm-hmm. I went to a, a writer's conference that year. They took it on for six months and, and, you know, tried to sell it to some of the traditional publishers but nobody was going to take a no name no household name memoir new first first time author uh-huh. so you know not having the following on social media I was like you know what i'm just gonna independently publish and so i i come into word um what was it writers of warrensburg our group yeah that we to i it really opened my eyes to the great feasible option of self-publishing um it wasn't free for me like i know you can do it for free but i wanted it to be a quality work so i invested in a substantive editor who was actually uh, doing this on the side at reedsy he charged a lot and um you know his feedback was gold but um did that and then i went through a line editor and she helped me with the um, fine tuning of it. And then I also had a beta reader group that gave me a lot of good feedback and some professional editors were in that group. So they helped me. Um, but yeah, I, I set the deadline of my son's due date and I was like, I'm getting it out here the first of that month. So, and I did, um, it was March 1st that I aimed for this year. And Maybe it was like a, a couple of weeks after that, that it actually got, you know, on Amazon and Kindle, mm-hmm. but it happened. And I'm like yeah. totally thrilled because it's been a 10 year process and dream in the making and it's finally in my hands now. So it's <laughs> Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. Uh, so there's just so much there uh, to unpack. Uh, I mean, and, and you wouldn't believe how many authors uh, traditionally and independent that I've talked to on the show who all said the same thing about that first book that it takes mm-hmm. eight years, 10 years, <laughs> yeah. whatever it's, there's so many of us in that same book. So, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. and I find it inspiring uh, to, to hear you say the same thing. And I think that there's people out there listening who find inspiration in that as well, that it's, yeah, you, you don't give up. You just keep going at it. And mm-hmm like what you did with the, you went the independent route and yet what people don't realize with the independent route is you're still putting out a quality book. You had professionals working with you mm-hmm. on this and, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, the end result is something no different than what somebody's going to find in uh, Barnes and Noble or, or uh, you know, wherever mm-hmm. from a traditional yeah. publisher. Right. Right. You can still have that quality. If you would tell us a little bit, because I know, like the title says, this is a memoir. What what was it like for you to 
go back um, over the years and kind of unpack your memories and um, just mm -hmm. kind of diving back into what you went through in your life, which is within this book? What was that process like for you? Um, that's interesting you say that and you ask that because it's still happening, this process. I've been like reflecting on now as I was writing it, it was always in my mind, the memories kept popping up, you know, over the 10 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I was, I, I would say I wasn't living in the past, but I was living in the memories of like what happened because I needed to get it down on the page. It was the burden that was just always in my heart to share. So mm -hmm. Um, looking back, it wasn't hard to write it at all. Um, in fact, when I went through the, the episodes of the mental illness, because that's what the book is about, um, for some reason, my memories were captured in a more, I guess, like, um, secure, I don't know how to say it, but like, I could remember and recall those things, maybe because I kept dwelling on them, but mm -hmm. You know, I, I was able to vividly capture what was going on when I was going through it, mm -hmm. which is interesting because some of them, some of the memories are actually hallucinations because of the mental illness. And they were just as vividly real as real as reality. And I'm like, yesterday or today, I was thinking about it. I was like, wow, you know what? That really wasn't Tom Cruise. Like, I mean, I believed it up until maybe like last year that I had actually seen Tom Cruise in person mm -hmm. in the flesh, like mm -hmm. standing on the cor street corner. And I'm like, for all I know, it, it, it could have been him, but like, I just kept that belief up until even, you know, as, a, as I published the book and maybe this year I just started reflecting and being like, you know what, it was real but hallucinations can be very real to the person having them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one thing I've learned in, in outpatient um, behavioral health care is you don't tell the person who's having their hallucinations that they seem real. <laughs> no, <laughs> you acknowledge that they're having them and that's their reality, but right. reality is reality to the person having it. So, but yeah, that's uh, basically how I perceive what happened to me. And then, to the reader, I, I believe it, it, it does pose a little bit of a um, catch-22 because they're reading it, okay, which parts are real, which parts aren't. And I'm thinking, as the writer, as the author, I'm thinking, well, some of it I've defined, what is and what isn't. Other parts, it's like, well, I didn't know myself either. Mm -hmm. So that's up to you to really decide as the reader what's real and what's not. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Okay. And what what I find really interesting about, about the books, you are discussing um, being bipolar, which is something that I'm, I, I understand. Well, let me see the best way for me to say it. Like it's something that I am not familiar with and maybe I don't understand it myself because I don't deal with it. However, um, I've come to understand it better over the years that it is a real thing. Like I was very much like, Oh, I, I don't know. You know, I, I think somebody's just acting up or whatever. And mm -hmm. I, I'm, you know, so I'm one of the people who've had to face that reality that like, no, no, this is like, it's a real issue. And, mm -hmm. and it's something that, that, you know, people like yourself are really dealing with. And it's like, like you're saying here with 
the, the different symptoms and the way it can affect you. And it's, it's really eye-opening for somebody like myself mm -hmm. and, and extremely brave for you to put so much of yourself into this. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's definitely like any other disorder or disease where you're, in a sense, other diseases that you can see or, or illnesses that you can see with other kinds of testing and stuff are like, okay, you have that. But yeah, um, a lot of people do have that kind of misguided belief that it's all in their head and they're just acting out. And But no, um, you know, if you look at the, the experience um, and, and then just immerse yourself in that kind of world, like in my book, mm -hmm. you'll notice like it's it's unusual it's not normal and it's got you know uh, to us it makes sense when we're going through the mental illness episodes it makes sense to us um and we do have it but to the outside person looking in it's like yeah it's questionable because you know it could be a learned behavior could it be you know they're just wanting attention you know i do see as i work in the outpatient um, healthcare with a uh, psych health. It's like, I do see tendencies of some clients like picking up behaviors that, you know, I, I still question, well, is, is borderline like an actual disorder that you can like pinpoint to a person's, um, brain chemistry. I don't know. Oh. I still, I myself, that's my personal belief. Right. Um, but yeah, in terms of like bipolar disorder and schizoaffective or schizophrenia, there is a clear like correlation of um the symptoms that we experience you know they're they're all documented in in a what they call the dsm-5 uh, the diagnostic statistic manual and they're all common in these in these behaviors and and it is rooted in the brain i believe in the chemistry because i take medicine for it now and it's not there like it's not presenting mm -hmm. because i'm on the medicine well, the medicine is chemical based. So the biochemistry is being affected when I take it so that I can have like, you know, normal moods and normal thought processes um, makes a difference. So, yeah. And that's something that was, uh, was new to me as well was understanding that that medicine is tailored specifically for the patient because everybody's a little different and it's, it's not mm -hmm. a perfect science. It's, it's, you got to try a little right. bit at a time right. And, right. and see how it's going to do. Cause I, I know somebody in my life who uh, needed to take some for a short time and, and it did give them uh, visions. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they saw things that weren't there and it was, that was a scary time. Mm -hmm. I remember, uh, you know, hearing from them later and uh, you know, then they had to go back and, and get the, the correct prescription and it was just night and day difference uh, yeah. to get that correct. And it's it's amazing what our minds are capable of, um, even on their own, uh, let alone on on certain medications. So, but I'm I'm glad that uh, that you you've got something that's helping you now. Mm -hmm. Out outside of medication, what what are some things that you do uh, to help you? I'm big into running. I have always been a runner since I guess I could run. Mm. I've competed since I was in seventh grade and uh, I still compete when I'm not pregnant and overweight, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm taking a year off for, you know, for that. But yeah, I was still running up in the 20th week of pregnancy with Jackson and did a 5k for like 
you know, just my own personal goal, but, um, I, I run so I can maintain that, you know, those endorphins going. Mm -hmm. I also have just recently changed my eating habits, which I don't know how much the food we fuel our bodies with affects our mind. I know there's, there's tons of research out there that is for eating healthy for your mind. Mm -hmm. I'm not on the bandwagon, but I, I am deciding to change my diet because I think I'll feel better, you know, physically. Yeah. Um, but I also keep a structured schedule for my day um, because I'm working full time. That enables me to keep that schedule and not fall into boredom, which might fall into a depressed state, which I haven't had uh, an episode off of. I mean, on my medicine, I haven't had an episode, but for some people with bipolar, I would say most people with bipolar and, and mood disorders like that, um, they can easily fall into those symptoms again if they're not purposefully working toward like a structured schedule or some kind of meaningful activity in their life. And then I keep um, a quiet time each morning to read my Bible and prayer journal. Um, I keep, you know, socializing. I'm with family and friends and church family. So, you know, well-rounded lifestyle is what I believe in. So that helps me, I think. Yeah, yeah. Your book came out right before uh, the pandemic or right at the, as, yeah. as that was happening, which affected, <laughs> I, I know it affected your, your, uh, your launch. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, and even though it affected that, it almost seems like, you know, maybe there's a reason for your book to come out since it's dealing with so many of these issues, which are extremely prevalent right now in this world that we're living in with COVID and people not being able to communicate with their family or friends as often as they used to and, and, you know, having to stay home. Um, uh -huh. So I, I can see where your book can be extremely vital and, and very, very helpful for people. What, what kind of advice can you give uh, people to uh, who maybe they're dealing with this and, uh, you know, they're just trying to find out how to get through the day. That's a big question. I <laughs> I never thought about my book in that regards, actually. I mean, I, I think I, I get it. Like, yeah. it came out just as, like, everybody's mental illness is – your mental health, rather. Everybody's mental health has been in a um, tried state, you know, um, these days, especially with the social distancing and the way things have shut down and our lives have turned completely – almost upside down um i mean definitely if you're feeling depressed and this could have been a triggering time for anybody with a inherently i want to say like genetic predisposition for a, a mood disorder um or a major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder like this is a triggering worldwide i mean worldwide but triggering for personally for people because you know it's never been like this before so um i'd suggest you know definitely check in um if you're feeling depressed or anxious more you know having these behaviors or these thoughts more than usual always keep an open communication with you and somebody you, close to you who's safe and you trust but also you know if you don't feel like you can talk to anybody there's text lines you can text 741741 and um, that's the uh, crisis text line that's, I think, worldwide. 
at least um, it's in America. So you can also, uh, if you're feeling suicidal, you can call 1-800-273-TALK. Um, and then if you really feel like it's a crisis, you know, um, you don't, you're thinking and planning and wanting to end your life and, and making preparatory acts or you're talking about it or thinking about it a lot. I mean, check in with a, a local therapist um, or behavioral outpatient clinic. And if you're, if you know, you know someone or you yourself or with somebody or, or it's you that's in a crisis and you're ready to like do something, you know, start something, I would say call 911 if it's in that kind of state. But, you know, from the gen general public, it's, it's just a real heavy, I don't know, it's, for this, for this time and in, in, in our world, it's, it's a heavy cloud that's weighing on a lot of people and talking about it and um, acknowledging it and being honest with your feelings is the first step. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree, which is from what I can see at its heart, I think that's what a lot of your, your book has done is bringing the discussion forward and make, helping bring some awareness to it, which I think, uh, I don't know. I, I, I kind of alluded to it before, but I, what I should just say is that as a, as a Christian myself, I think maybe there was a reason that your book came out at that time that it did, uh, knowing that uh, there might be some people out there who could really use your book right now. And so I think uh, I think it's a it's a very special moment, and uh, hopefully uh, some people do, you know, pick it up and and maybe find that. And and I love that you mm -hmm. you have the the links. You know the phone numbers. You've got all the information for people just right mm -hmm. there. <laughs> so that's that's fantastic. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was a, uh, when, when it came to, uh, to the writing and uh, putting it together, what was something that you found the most challenging? Writing for the reader. Oh. It's, it's like, I'm very good at recalling and sharing what I experienced, but to connect with the reader, I think it's harder than that because it's memories and memories I can see or I can hear what happened as I recall them in my head, but to put them on the paper or under the, you know, into the text, sometimes I would miss stuff and it wouldn't get in there. It wouldn't get in there. And that was probably the, the most challenging intellectually challenging part about it um, because uh, it's, it's not as easy as just telling up, a story for me anyway it's not as easy as just telling a story and expecting everybody to get it the first time it was I had to show it to people they had to read it that okay well what are you missing here you know you're missing something because I didn't get it kind of thing that was probably the most challenging then the next most um challenging was probably the publishing process and the printing process I mean you know getting <laughs> all the details of that done because yeah. it is a process but that wasn't like a heavy like mountain. It was like a lot of little different hills that I had to go over, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I feel you there. It's like getting the book done was half the battle and then learning how to format and then learning <laughs> how to work inside of uh, Amazon <laughs> and how many times it would bounce back. Well, this is outside oh. the margin and you got to format this differently. Well, oh, and you know, I used, I used, um, 
an outside a third party for that part which was yeah it was still back and forth with them because they they put it into the formatting um they did the interior formatting and the cover design i just Mm -hmm. going back and forth with them about like little things yeah that was a process (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness well uh where can where can people find and follow you I'm on social media at Katie R. Dale. It's Instagram, Pinterest, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. And then my blog is called bipolarbrave.com. I blog there regularly, like once a month these days. Um, But yeah. And then if you want to go to freshhope.us is their website. I have a blog on their blog that I contribute to. All right. Wonderful. This has been fantastic. And I, I love getting to catch up with you. And it's at the same time, it's a little sad because it's, it's who knows if this could be the last time I get to really talk to you before, uh, you know, the holidays come up mm-hmm. and uh, who knows if we'll get to get back together as a writing group before, yeah. before you leave. But, uh, you know, still the, the nice thing about doing the show is it gives me that chance to, uh, to talk with you and it's going to be, It'll always be there and available for everybody to download and, and check this out. Katie, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing your story and this incredible book. And I, I really wish the best uh, to you and your husband and, and your family. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, uh, what can we expect from, uh, from what you're going to be reading today? So I've selected a chapter that's um, a little bit past the halfway point of the book, but this is my second episode of having bipolar disorder where I'm in a severe psychotic state and I'm in the hospital and I'm trying to make sense of what's going on around me and not getting any sleep because I'm refusing my medicine. And I will add, I have a lot of spiritual and religious uh, references because one of the symptoms of this this disorder is hyper-religiosity and being a very faith-filled person myself personally, I will have a lot of those references. So um, I'm going to be reading from chapter 12, Sleepless in Siesta. Wonderful. The name of the hospital is Siesta Behavioral Hospital. It's in Florida. All right. Fantastic. Well, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I'm going to hand things over to my wonderful guest, Katie Ardale with But Deliver Me From Crazy. It was now 7.30 a.m., at least according to the clock on one wall. The clock on the adjacent wall read 8.30 a.m. Why are they trying to put us in different time zones? This place is backward. I then noticed a stocky staff member with a clipboard in hand. He talked to a staff member behind the desk while his eyes focused on me. He had a warm, friendly gaze. He looked like a person who enjoyed his job. I could already tell we were going to be friends. Catherine, he called. Yes, I answered. You hungry? He said. His name badge read Mo. Yes, Mo. Okay, he said. Stand right here. He said something to the nurse and the staff person in a low voice, then turned back to me. Stick around, kid. You want sausage or bacon for breakfast? I prefer bacon. At this point, I would eat anything. All right, have a seat at that table in the corner. 
Immediately, my nerves kicked in, my stomach twisted, and I felt discriminated against. Others began forming a line by the nurse's station to go to the cafeteria. Why do I have to stay? I want to go too. My neck tensed up and my palms got clammy. My breath was short. What is this conspiracy about? Why can't I go to the cafeteria? But as soon as the line formed and the group proceeded toward the double doors, I was sure I was the sacrificial lamb to be slaughtered. They're going to make me the meal, came the thought. My instant reaction was that I was supposed to be Bella from Twilight, and the rest were the vampires getting ready to have me for breakfast. I forced my way to the nurse's station desk as the line exited, and all reason seemed to leave me. Help, I stammered. They're going to eat me, I whispered. Nurse Roger was behind the desk, and despite my plea, his eyebrows didn't rise. All he said was, Catherine, step away from the desk. As the reality of my fate sunk in, I laid my forehead on the counter in a desperate fashion, ignoring Roger's caution. A tall man in a gray suit appeared at my side, as did Frank, the man who originally asked for my wedding ring. I spotted the taller man's name badge. Gabriel? I said as I read the angelic name. Could God have sent his archangels to protect me? Gabriel. I repeated his name so that he would have to look me in the eyes. Are they going to eat me? I asked in sincerest form. He smiled an unfeeling smile, somewhat amused, and looked past me. Gabriel walked through the door into the adjacent side of the nurse's station. Frank walked up beside me and signaled Gabriel, who was eyeing my body. Frank observed his leering and nodded in jest toward me. Eh? Frank asked Gabriel and laughed. Ugh, I said, immediately picking up on the innuendo. Oh, please no. I squirmed at the notion of them thinking of me as that kind of piece of meat. In denial of the joke, I huffed and hastily marched away from the desk and back to my room. No, I pleaded as I stormed back to my room. God, no. I pleaded now in prayer. I sat on the bed after shutting the door most of the way before I picked up my Bible from the nightstand next to my bed. I turned to Psalms 27, 1 through 3 and found these verses appropriate to read aloud. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked come against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may camp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war may rise against me. This I will be confident. I proclaim those words aloud, breathing every syllable and utterance with all my being. They would not eat me. They would not have their appetite satisfied. My Lord would protect me, and I was not without his help. I would wait in this room until they came for me. It didn't matter what they wanted from me. I wouldn't let them have any of it. The hour passed, and I regained my composure. I stepped from the room slowly and listened for voices carrying down the hall. One person stood behind the nurse's station, but I couldn't tell who it was. I headed back to the common room to see if they'd left me any food. They had. I looked out the window at the courtyard. It was a sunny September day. Today's the first. In two days, it's my birthday. I grew anxious at the thought. I wondered if I'd be home to celebrate with my friends and family. I imagined going for a morning run on the beach with my friends, then jumping into the waves afterwards to refresh ourselves. I ached to return home with Chris and to lead a normal life. The feelings for Chris that were absent upon admission gradually returned to my heart. Catherine Dale, a voice said. 
I turned around and saw a young man holding a clipboard, a whistle around his neck, and a basketball under his arm. Would you like to go outside? It's rec time. Yes, please, I exclaimed. I could finally get out of this wing. Okay, line up by the clock, he said. Others lined up after me and talked softly among themselves. He lifted a badge up to the box to the right of the double doors. Elopement evacuation route, a sign on the door read. Elopement? My mind thought of someone getting married, not understanding the alternate definition. Was someone going to try to get married? Are they prepared in case Tom Cruise tries to come in here and marry me? My mind was drawn to the present situation, but the silliness of that thought didn't wear off. We moved forward at the teacher's instruction and I walked through the doors leading the line. It was a relief leaving the corridor I'd been in for the last 30 hours. I followed the instructor's directions to another set of double doors. As we waited on the instructor, another instructor and his group of young kids came in through the door. They were chatty. There she is, a young girl said. Cinderella, said another. It may have been a hallucination, but I interpreted their comments to be about me. Eventually, we made it to the great wide open. It was the size of a small park. I was in heaven with all this space to run in. I took to the sidewalk, knelt, and did 20 push-ups. Then I started running the length of the sidewalk and then joined in a soccer game. Afterward, on our way in, we stood around waiting for the instructor. One of the male patients in his 50s smirked at me. He was wearing a Top Gun visor. Top Gun, I said, a Tom Cruise movie. You know it, he said. Looking him straight in the eyes, I shook my head. Really? I thought this joke about Tom Cruise was only in my head. I guess it was a spreading rumor. What's the deal? My birthday was coming soon. As September 3rd approached, I worried I'd miss out celebrating with friends and family. While I'd spoken to Chris on the phone each night, there was a growing longing in my heart to go home. I want to go home. I shouldn't be here, I told Nurse Roger at the nurse's station. How long do I have until I can go? Catherine, you can go whenever the doctor says. My stomach churned. What if days turned into weeks? This could be an undetermined amount of time. I had signed an open-ended agreement. When I was admitted, it was a voluntary admission. Roger explained that in the state of Florida, I could contend my stay and request a release, provided it was requested within the first three days. It was day number two. I put on my best act to keep my nerves at bay. Isn't there something I can do? I mean, I voluntarily admitted myself. Aren't you Baker acted? He asked. Baker acted? What is that? I had to think fast. Not to my knowledge, I said. He looked at me for a moment and reached for a binder in front of him. He flipped it open into a section and unclasped the rings and pulled out a paper. Fill this out completely. Sign on the X's. He handed me the paper and pen on a clipboard. Thank you. I was going places now. Ten minutes later, I returned the paper to him. The burden was lifted from my shoulders. I breathed a sigh of relief. Within 24 hours of signing the release form, and now a handful of days without sleep, I was pacing the hall and wringing my hands. Anxiety gripped my mind tighter, and my temples tensed. If I didn't go home by my birthday, my friends and family would miss out. I wanted a celebration. Turning 25 was a big deal, wasn't it? I had my party planned. I was inviting at least a dozen friends and had already started on invitations before I got here. I approached Roger and breathed deeply. I gotta go home. It's my birthday tomorrow. I'm having my friends over and everything. He balked at me. 
Am I going to be able to? I've been here for two days. Yes, Catherine, you'll have a party. All your family and friends will be there, he said. I turned away in disgust. He was lying. This place blows. The pressure in my temples inflamed my mind. I felt like I was running a fever. My arms wouldn't stop shaking. The clocks on the walls told me two different times and I was fatigued. I needed to stay awake so they couldn't reboot my brain and I needed to get out of here. What are they doing to me? I had spoken with the psychiatrist assigned to me, Dr. Nadeep and Dr. Dog, each once. I didn't care for Dr. Nadeep. He was rumored to be the sexist doctor and I got nowhere with Dr. Dog. When she and I met, I tried to keep it short and sweet instead of rambling like I'd been prone to do lately. Catherine, tell me what's going on. Dr. Dog was a kind Indian woman. I thought perhaps her compassion would be a note I could play to. Well, I don't know what cat ever got along with a dog, but can your people call my people and we'll settle this in other terms? I'd like to get home and get some rest. She raised her eyebrows, but didn't look at me. She kept writing. I tried again. How about you check back with me in November? I suggested. I'm planning on running a half marathon and doing my best to land a personal record. She kept writing. I couldn't stop babbling. Maybe you'd be able to write me a prescription. I'm feeling like myself again. Still no response. I signed the release form and plan on going home as soon as possible. Okay, Catherine, thank you. You may go now. I felt jittery, but I obliged. Okay, I'm going to move on to the last part of that chapter because there's a lot more, but I'm probably going to make a quicker exit with this. <laughs> I found myself in the isolation room. I was panicky and like a stubborn dog resisting its beckoning owner, sleep refused to come to me. I was plagued with anxiety and confusion. The room was behind the walls with the clocks on them across from the nurse's station. It was a square room, 10 feet wide, a dungeon cell with a simple blue mat on the floor and some oceanic underwater seam pattern on the walls. I spent a while in there, but for how long I couldn't tell. It wasn't worth it in the end. I think I volunteered to try it. I didn't have enough stimulation to keep my mind challenged. After hours of failed attempts to sleep, I asked the nurse's permission to leave and they let me return to my room. My mind felt scrambled. Time was irrelevant. The longer I was in the psych unit, the more the hospital knew about me. At a certain time, I felt like an open book and the visualized pages fanned out in a complete circle with a thin spine open to anyone who may want to examine me. There was nothing secret or sacred about me here. I had to intentionally carve out any privacy I had. I took on many identities in my imagination, like Katniss from The Hunger Games, Bella from Twilight, and other main characters from pop culture famous stories. Like delusions with these ideas of reference, I truly believed I was the main characters because why not? The tendency to have a narcissistic outlook was derived from this symptom. I felt like Cinderella and this was my cell. I presumed I had to sing prayers and praise to God to combat the spiritual warfare. In my mania, you could find me improvising and delighting myself in songs for God to save me, that my prince would come, and that this nightmare would end. The doctors had been experimenting with my medicines, trying different ones, not sure which would help. At best, this exasperated the symptoms and prolonged my stay, so I refused all medication. Since that time in my life, the best explanation I've heard for the doctors not putting me back on the meds I was on before 
was because they may have thought those beds stopped working. I still cannot tell if they didn't ask, if I didn't disclose, or if it was simply ignored that the medications I was on prior to my breakdown worked fine. I chose to wean off of them out of ignorance, misguidance, and anastignosia. Putting me back on them would have quickened my recovery and saved me the journey through the hospitals for almost three months of chaos. It cost me my sleep, sanity, and assurance of salvation. More sufficient documentation and treatment would have ensured I did not get released prematurely from siesta because I was only able to see a doctor once every week, it seems, and the treatment of medications they trialed me on would take time to see effective results, I did not progress. I was released too early. They could have spared me the extra time spent there had they put me back on the medications I was originally on, except they didn't. That was Katie R. Dale reading a sample chapter from her debut novel, but deliver me from crazy a memoir it's incredible and it's full of great quality information if you are dealing with things right now that are really taxing your your mental stability then make sure you reach out for help uh, there are there are lots of resources and i'm going to put some links in the show notes for for those and how to reach out to katie uh, you can also click the links for our sponsors and podcast friends alike and make sure you tune in next time so that you don't miss out when we're back with a brand new author, a new book, and an all-new sample chapter. Take care, everybody. We'll see you again real, real soon. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.